So I wanted to um, just talk a bit as we <coughs> settle in again on some ways in which it can be difficult to open to change or impermanence. You know, what is it that, you know, why is it that it's not that easy to dig down a little bit farther to the point where we're experiencing impermanence in a way that's going to bring us wisdom, that's going to actually make it easier to deal with the changes in our life. And I want to offer three uh, three points about that. The first is that this um, direct experience of impermanence, which we explored a little bit in the last meditation, the guided meditation, is that it's masked. And it's masked in two ways. Um, one of them is the the speed of change, actually. I mean, we know about changes that occur throughout the day or, you know, at the, at the level <laughs> of minutes or hours or days or months or years. Those are the kinds of changes that anybody can see just experiencing their life. And these are fine, but they're not... Uh, that kind of level of change is not going to uh, reduce suffering particularly, mm, at least not for most people. I'll qualify that. So this, But the, the rapid change, the changes in, for example, feeling tone that we looked at, where every experience actually has a different, has a feeling tone. And they can change. I mean, they can be pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, pleasant. <laughs> you can get tired just following... I usually don't have people do feeling tone experience for too long. In case somebody is actually mindful enough that they're able to experience it every moment, it's quite disorienting. It's quite disorienting. And there comes a time where you can't avoid it, and the experience does become disorienting in how quickly it changes. But for the most part, this is masked. The actual change of experience moment to moment is so rapid, we don't see it. Um, An example I've heard about this kind of nice is... um, I don't know if you ever used one of those fire sticks on the 4th of July or something where it's lit on the end and the idea is that you kind of whirl it around. And when somebody is doing this or performing this, like let's say they're whirling it in a circle, then the circle appears to be unbroken, um, unbroken light, even though it's one point of light just being spun very quickly. And so it's like this in our experience in that it's changing very rapidly um, it's not nothing is particularly stable about it, but we tend to it gets blurred together, and so we see things as continuous, as solid, as objects. Um, the visual field is particularly deceptive in this way, in that the change in the visual field is so rapid we can't see it with our eyes, so we impute permanence to the objects that we see. But it's a little easier to see in body sensations, I think. That one's the one where we have a similar ability to detect and also the speed of the change. We can feel flickers in body sensation, particularly if something changes rapidly, like um, if you have a flash of anger, for example, that quickly fades. It feel, You can feel it as a rush of energy, and then there's this kind of tail where it decays and you feel the adrenaline. Or if you have a moment of fear, you, know, you come around the corner and, and somebody scares you in some way, you'll jump, and then, so that's a very rapid change, and then you can feel the fluttering of the heart and the sort of relaxation of that. So that level of change is fairly 
you can feel fairly rapid change. But the visual field's terrible. You can't see the the change that goes on so rapidly. Um, sounds, sometimes you can hear if you're more attuned. So there's um, there's just the rapidity. And then the second way that change, you know, genuine change is masked or genuine impermanence is actually through our beliefs. So I hinted at it in the last one. Our beliefs, of concepts, ideas. Concepts can be unchanging. You know, there's always this phrase, oh, everything is impermanent. And it is, except for concepts. <laughs> um, concepts can remain unbroken. Of course, they are ultimately impermanent because they're dependent on your consciousness and your mind and <clears throat> you'll eventually die or you'll think of something else. But while you have that concept going, it can be essentially permanent. And this is not bad or wrong. Concepts create stability. If I, When I look out at the room, what I actually see, actually see is light, darkness, edges, and colors. And that's what I can see. As I can, that's, what, that's what rods and cones detect. They detect black and white, and they detect color. However, what I see when I look out at the room, because it interacts with my mind, is I can see chairs and people and the floor and the bell and the lights, and I know what all those things are. But that's all being assembled by my mind. And those are all concepts. Uh, those are all concepts, but thank goodness, otherwise it would be a mess. You can't get around the world. And, if, and we teach this to children. You know, we hold up the cup and we say, cup. <laughs> you know, we're training them to have permanence of ideas. Um, but this is good. You know, if it didn't happen, it would be a disaster, right? And people who have various kinds of brain damage where some of those functions don't work, um, a lot of those are related to the self and awareness of who we are and what the world is. And people like that are not very functional. So I'm not advocating that this is something wrong with the mind or that it's bad and we shouldn't be doing it, uh, but be aware that um, it's the sticking point where the, where the mind can cr- also create suffering. So these things are not the problem. As always, it's the attachment or the non-awareness that that's what's going on. So the Buddha tried very hard to educate us about how things actually are, which is rapidly changing, and then to learn to deal with that on the emotional level where which I'll talk about next. But the problem is that we take these permanent, these concepts as, as reality and we impute permanence to them. That's where the problem is. If we didn't believe that they were impermanent, that would be fine. They believe that they were permanent. So as an exercise, actually, um, take a look at something in the room, like, I don't know, like a chair. I'll look at a chair since that's easy. And if you move your head from side to side at something that you know what it is, you might say, this is completely silly, Kim. Why are you having us do this? It's so obvious. You just get a different angle on the object. But that's not actually what's happening. The visual field is changing in ways um, that are subtle. We're seeing something actually different when we're looking at this angle. Um, but we impute in our mind that what we're seeing is a chair from a different physical angle. So this is created by the mind. So the visual field changes, but my concept of chair does not. In fact, I'll even declare that's the same chair. You know, I'm just seeing it from a different angle. Well, that's one interpretation. Another interpretation is it's a different visual field that I'm looking at. And so I've imputed then another object that 
I have object permanence in my mind. I know that a chair from this angle and a chair from that angle is still a chair. But that's, uh, that's conceptual. That's done by the mind. A more direct example, uh, which I'll offer now, is if you would close your eyes, and this is just a little short exercise, and feel into your right hand, for example. So the area of your body that is your right hand. And forget about the concept of hand, but hone in on the actual experience of that hand from the inside. So what you'll probably feel is maybe you can feel first into the palm and you'll feel some heat. Most people have heat and some pulsing sensations. And then see if you can sort of move your awareness into each finger in succession. Let it come into its own bloom into awareness. You'll feel probably some pulsing because there's a pretty good pulse in the hand some tingling, some sense of shape, but maybe not so clear. See if you can feel kind of a field of sensations of heat, of movement, of pressure, because your hand might be resting on something. Maybe because you're noticing it, I just felt a little tickle on my in that field. Just a little bit sharp feeling. And this whole buzzing array of sensations. And just rest in that flickering field for a moment. It's completely impermanent. Now, gently, still meditatively, open your eyes and look at the hand, and think of the concept hand. This is my hand. At the same moment, what happened to those subtle sensations? Do you still feel them? Maybe. Maybe you can still feel some of them. But my experience is that when I'm in the concept of hand, looking at it, it's blocked to feel quite as subtly as I could when my eyes were closed and I was just feeling from the inside. So this is, again, it's not a problem. When you're looking at your hand, it's a visual experience of the hand and that's what you see. And it, and it creates in your mind the perception hand and that word appears. But that's not the only experience of that object. It can also be this flickering field from the inside. That's a different way of experiencing it. And the two are not especially compatible. They're not especially compatible. So understand that this is how we go through the world. Often we go through living in the world of solid concepts, of this is this and that's that, and I'm here and you're there and we're different and so forth. And that's fine, that's adaptive. Um, And it's not the only way of experiencing. And the Buddha pointed us toward saying a little bit more of that internal pulsing experience is going to help transform uh, the suffering that you feel around those objects, which are going to go away at some point. So that's two ways that 
direct experience of change is masked. One is that it's very rapid, so it's just hard to see, actually. And the second is that we have concepts and ideas that overlay onto that and block the experience of seeing the rapidly changing nature of the phenomenal world. As if that weren't enough, there is a third issue with experiencing impermanence directly, And that is that when we do begin to open to it, as all of us have today, it's not not an obscure, difficult thing. It's just that we haven't done it. But we did it earlier today. And once that happens, we encounter the third problem, which is emotional barriers, mainly fear. (laughs) Is that when we start to see that kind of rapid change, uh, something in us says, whoa, that that's a little groundless for me. Uh, And so we have this experience of wanting to hold on to something. Where's the stability? And this is what we get in a bigger form when some big disruption comes in our life, someone dies, um, we get a diagnosis that we weren't expecting, uh, our relationship suddenly breaks up that we thought was going okay, there's that feeling, that same feeling, right, of, whoa, my world has shifted. And so these, um, and we don't like that feeling. It's unpleasant, usually, that feeling. And so we try to avoid that in various ways, and that also blocks us from really experiencing the change. So um, this is from a quote from Trolig Kyabgan Rinpoche. The Buddhist view is that fear is ubiquitous. We all have an underlying sense of not being settled, of not being secure. We have an existential feeling of uncertainty and instability, and that makes us very anxious. Unfortunately, we usually apply the wrong antidote to this ever-present sense of anxiousness. To allay or mollify that fear, we try to find refuge in accumulating wealth, or trying to make a big name for ourselves, or doing aerobics, or getting a new nose, or whatever. You may not do exactly those things, but you know your patterns. Yet, doing these things over and over again does not actually settle us. (laughs) In fact, it does the opposite. It exacerbates the very problem we're trying to address. Buddhism does not teach us to completely give up all relationship with material things. That's not the point. The point is the attitude we take toward what we do and what we have. When we do things to try to make ourselves secure to establish our own sense of identity, we are, in some cases, barking up the wrong tree. We may inflame our negative emotions. And then, when these emotions become inflamed, our fears grow. They compound, they go haywire. As the Buddha himself said, we get completely bogged down by fears of not getting what we want to have, being separated from what we have, and getting what we don't want. Those are the three big ones. Unless we have some kind of spiritual focus, we do not feel any real sense of groundedness, and so our efforts are not fruitful in the long run. We disperse our psychic and spiritual energies, leaving ourselves exhausted and frustrated. So he paints a pretty extreme picture. Um, I think he's trying to do a little bit of waking up for people who who have not thought about this at all. So, you know, those of us who do have a spiritual life, still we know that... Um, it takes some work, right, to keep looking at these things that are challenging. And we may not be at the level of, you know, trying to accumulate a huge amount of wealth or getting a new nose, 
um, as far as you know, responding to this underlying fear. But we still do the things like the yoga and the, um, and these things are not entirely bad. It's all in the balance. Um, I think it's good to have spiritual friendships, um, healthy relationships, to eat well, to do things like that, to get enough sleep, to take care of ourselves in those physical and emotional ways. Those are necessary for us as animals, as regular old human beings. And um, doing a spiritual practice is what's going to work the best in the end. So he goes on to say... If we are secure in ourselves from having found some kind of spiritual focus and we learn how to gather our psychic and spiritual energies into ourselves, we can discover a kind of inner richness. We acknowledge the deep sense of emptiness we feel at the very bottom of our being, which cannot be filled by any kind of love that we might get from other people or any amount of money, and we see that it can be filled only with the richness of our own spiritual cultivation if we do that, we will experience a sense of groundedness that allows us to reduce and manage the fears we experience and eventually to overcome them. The very act of dealing with fear is attaining fearlessness. So I like that he holds that out at the end, is that this turning toward is actually a very brave thing to do, even to come to a day long like this as an act of fearlessness. You may not feel fearless at this exact moment, but um, but it is. And this sense of spiritual cultivation, which can happen in any circumstances, actually, whether positive, negative, challenging, easy, uh, we can always be cultivating our wholesome qualities of mind and heart, and that provides the richness and the refuge. Um, and it's not... You don't have to use, he uses kind of strong, dramatic language, but it's actually very simple. At any moment when we're cultivating mindfulness or generosity or patience or something, uh, that moment we have, we have that instead of anxiousness or fear or something else. So it's not easy what we're doing. There, there are ways in which our habitual way of being is blocking us from the spiritual side. That's why there are these need to turn deliberately toward the teachings, to make a little bit of effort, to um, be with others who are doing similar things so we know that we're not the only one swimming against the stream that we experience out there of advertisements and TV and everything that we're given uh, that tells us a lot of ways to be happy that aren't actually making us happy. So we... Um, we have these ways of cultivating our inner richness. So with that, we'll sit a bit and, and do that. And um, I'll guide the beginning.